On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, how are you? I'm back in Arizona. I spent, uh, I got back about a week ago. I was up for uh, about eight days in a cabin in the middle of the woods with no road access, oh. no electricity, no running water, fishing with my son and also my mother. It was absolutely blissful. So it was. Uh, it's good to be back in civilization, but uh, it's a cabin that's been on my mother's side of the family now for 70 years. And Jeez. due to events of the past couple of years, it's been a little tougher to get up there, but uh, we were able to get back up there a few weeks ago and just had a fabulous time. It was great. Well, that sounds fantastic and very relaxing, but now you're back at it. You're back at the podcast, educating folks, and you have brought on an amazing guest. Um, and the, the two of you just absolutely brought my IQ up like 40 points just by being in the same room with you guys. <laughs> Thanks. And I, I really appreciate Andy agreeing to do do this with me. I've got Andy Schechtman on. He's the president of uh, Miles Franklin, precious metals dealer, and he's really an expert in the space. I've spent a lot of time over the last week or so preparing for this podcast, watching a lot of the stuff that he's discussed on YouTube. And I get a lot of questions about precious metals and gold. And I want to start by this. I'm going to try to beat my compliance team to the punch here. My answer with precious metals is always, you know, I'm like, I can't tell you whether to buy these or to sell these. I can't really advise on having a position in the physical metals. I will say that as a student of history and as somebody that, uh, that looks back you know, over the course of not just decades, but a long, long period of time, personally, I think that there's a place, at least for metals, if that's something that you're interested in. And, and my tune for that really changed for me after 9-11. Uh, those that know me know that I was about four blocks away from the towers when they came down. And I looked at the, this world that I thought uh, was more stable than it actually was in reality and said, hey, you know, maybe there's a way I could protect a little bit of my own uh, personal wealth and do it in a way that uh, do it in a way that's outside of the system. And this is coming from a person that's very much in the financial system for 99% of what I do here. But um, with that in mind, so I'm not coming at this like I think a lot of people in my industry immediately are going to have negative things to say about precious metals. I'm, I want to really come at this from a neutral stance and open my mind up and listen to what Andy has to say, because he's far, far more knowledgeable in this than I am, that's for sure. So Andy, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, the, the pleasure is mine. I, uh, I certainly, certainly was excited to, uh, to get your email, Brent, and uh, certainly I've done a little bit of work with Eric before and uh, excited to be here. appreciate the invite and uh, Happy to uh, to go any direction you'd like to to take this. Well, you know, let's just start it with, you know, I get I get asked about these alternative asset classes quite a bit, and uh, and my answer is always again, buy things that you believe in, buy things that that you're passionate about. We've got we've got investors that we work with that have phenomenal collections of guitars, you know, that have watches, that have uh, rare art, that have, you know, things that, that, that are kind of non-traditional asset classes for sure. They've got an immense personal enjoyment from those assets. And they've also, if they're looking at some point to, to make a sale on those, they've done pretty well. And I think from the metal standpoint, that at least was my sort of initial approach and in, in thinking to myself, okay, particularly on the, uh, on the numismatic side, you know, we're, we're buying, I'm going buying art here that might have some intrinsic value behind it. But um, so I guess I'll start with that. So let's start a really basic thing here. A question I get a lot about metals 
is there's minted gold, there's just ounces, or there's buying something that is rare beyond just the metal content. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'm going to answer it maybe a little bit of a different way than, than you may expect, but I'm going to answer it backwards first before I tell you what, what gold and silver are to me. I went to the University of Minnesota to play baseball before I hurt myself in playing basketball and ended my, my aspirations of being a, a baseball player. I was 19 years old when I started this company with my father, and um, along the way, because of my love of baseball, we always wrote a newsletter and I would put in the newsletter that uh, if you own baseball cards, send them in and I will uh, trade you gold and silver for them. I have built a a world-class collection of baseball cards. In fact, you can probably see some of them right there on the wall. And uh, yeah, so I have frames like that all over the place. Anyways, uh, the, to me, that that's a collection that is, you could argue something like you're talking about. I get immense, immense joy out of them. I look at them all the time more than any asset that I own. And they have outperformed in terms of price appreciation, all the metals that I own. I When I moved down to Florida last year and I had to get my insurance policy update, I couldn't believe the appreciation in these old rare baseball cards. The cards, all of them, you know, like the Babe Ruths and the Cy Youngs and the Ty Cobbs, I... People, your father's and grandfather's age would send these cards into me in the 90s. I became a power seller on eBay hmm. and, and and I never bought it to make money, um, but it turned out to be great appreciation. My father owns a um, a rare German Luger collection, um, World War II, and it's outperformed all the gold and silver that we own. There are collectibles, even in numismatics, and to me, you know, when we're talking about collectibles and things like that, whether they be baseball cards, German Lugers, um, anything that you want, antiques of any form, or even the rare um, gold and silver coins, that to me is not what gold and silver is to me. Uh, that to me is first and foremost something that you get enjoyment out of. And if it happens to appreciate well that that's fantastic i think most collectors have a very hard time ever visualizing actually selling their collection but that's neither here nor there i just want you to know that it's a fair statement when you talk about that and i think some people do look at it that way but i look at it differently so if we go back to when i was 19 years old my father said to me there's one rule and only one rule when we started this company from scratch uh, I think you could say my company is the embodiment of the American dream. We just eclipsed $7 billion in sales without a customer complaint ever. and But we started from nothing. My father's middle name is Miles, and his best friend who loaned us $60,000, his middle name is Franklin. And uh, we started in a one-room office the size of a closet. And uh, he said, you're not going to make the same mistakes that I made. Uh, the only rule for uh, starting this company with me is that you will um, you'll buy something every two weeks. And uh, although I've owned the company now pretty much entirely, he is my partner, but he's been retired for two decades. And uh, I'm the president of the company. He's not going to fire me any longer, but I have honored my promise to him. And for 30 years, 33 years, I have never missed a two-week period ever uh, without buying something, whether it be an ounce of silver or 20 ounces of gold or anything on either side of that. To me, gold and silver are wealth. And, and I say that not to be trite, 
not to to act as as though I'm trying to sell anybody anything. The way that I look at my gold and silver is as wealth that I hope I never need to use. If I do, whether it be an emergency, as most people only visualize using gold and silver for, or maybe even more relevant, an opportunity when asset prices find equilibrium with fair interest rates whenever that happens. But maybe there's an opportunity where stocks are trading at single-digit price-to-earnings ratios and paying a 7% dividend the way they used to be demanded way back when. Or maybe it's that cabin near near mom's that, that opens up where you can buy the lot next door at pennies on the dollar and have that uh, double lot stay in your family for another 70 years. Whatever it may be, gold and silver to me are wealth that are there for an emergency, that it's there for an opportunity, or is there to pass on to your family, to your children, to your grandchildren, to a charity, whatnot. And I do know that the gold and silver that I own, I think, has a higher probability of being considered wealth uh, in the year 3000, when my great-great-great-grandchildren are using what was passed down to them. When the dollar bills that I have in my wallet right now and you have in yours uh, are hanging from a frame of the Smithsonian as an example of what was. So as we base our discussion moving forward uh, in a very roundabout way, please understand that everything that I say to you today, everything is rooted in the philosophy and the belief that gold and silver is wealth that spans five, 6,000 years that has lived through German hyperinflation, that has lived through the Great Depression, that has weathered every pandemic, uh, that has lived through two world wars and still remains immutable in terms of its value in terms of its demand, in terms of its uh, desire to be accumulated globe over. And so it's not about, it's not the cherry on the Sunday, and that would be the rare numismatics, the pre-33 stuff could maybe even be the hot fudge. I like that stuff if the price was right, but to me, it's about the vanilla ice cream and getting as much gold and silver uh, as possible without being penny wise and pound foolish by getting a giant brick with no utility or flexibility. So everything that we talk about will be rooted in the philosophy that this is wealth, not an investment. What you have to offer, that's an investment, at least to me. If I needed an investment manager or someone to help me uh, navigate my way through equities or, or bonds or whatnot, I would call you. For me, what I offer is wealth. And some people may disagree with that. This is the way that I look at it. So, so, and you've been in this business now for 33 years. Uh, so by my math, you came in at really probably not quite halfway through a really brutal bear market for metals that lasted, I guess, from 80, 81 all the way to really 2001. Yep. Um, what was it like being in business during that period of time? What w- was the message similar to what you're, to what you're saying now? Because you know, everyone has recency bias where they look back and you're coming through the 80s, which 1980 to 2000 was arguably one of the most spectacular times to be an investor in anything in the United States. Fixed income equities, real estate, it almost didn't matter. And what was how receptive initially were clients to that message in 1989 or 1990? Uh, well, fortunately, our initial business back then, we were uh, still are a representative of a company called BFI Consulting in Zurich, Switzerland. We were the U.S. contact for the Swiss insurance industry. And there was a referring agency in Zurich, Switzerland that that 
worked on behalf of the Swiss insurance industry and a contact, a friend of a friend, asked my father to um, help represent the Swiss insurance industry. We did a tremendous amount of volume in Swiss annuities. And fortunately, many of the hard money people picked up on this. Doug Casey, Gary North, guys of that ilk would write about it and and refer people to us. Uh, We ended up realizing very quickly that the same person who wanted Swiss francs wanted precious metals. But, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because you know, my message has turned a little bit darker over the last year or two, actually two years. And 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 I think that it's never been this way. I have never talked about what I see coming ever, but for the last two years. And, and that is why I told you that I believe gold and silver are wealth. As I have accumulated all of the gold that I own, especially after the year 2000, when my first child was born, I really did look at it as though I hope I never need to use it, that I am building a legacy for my son and subsequently his two sisters. But I look at things a little bit differently right now, and I think the message is, is slightly darker. So back then, my focus would have certainly not have been on protect uh, uh, buying gold and silver for impending trouble in the economy quite the way that it is now. It was just about having a component of your wealth in uh, or in your assets that that was, let's call it a hedge to everything else, uh, insurance policy to everything else. But the message that I am that I have been talking about lately is a little bit more dire. And um, you know, I try and 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 really let people know who I am. That this is not something I take joy in. But I've been at this long enough, and I've been watching things closely enough. And I see real problems ahead. And I've never talked to people this way. You know, it, it, they say people are motivated by fear and greed. I have never been a, a peddler of fear. Uh, I have never been afraid ever, but I am now. And I'm afraid for my children. I'm afraid for all of us what I see coming. I hope I'm wrong. I say that. And, and it's not even that I see it coming. I see, you know, we live in a world of probabilities. There are no absolutes. I see a high probability that things are going to get a little darker for the United States. And I know we'll talk about that here in a few minutes, but just understand that back then it was a different deal. If we, if we did, um, I don't know, all we had to do was basically uh, make $14,000 a month to pay our bills and for everything, uh, including mailing newsletters around the country and whatnot. And so it was a whole different thing. I learned to have strong fingertips. No one wanted gold at that point at the, you know, after, you know, a bear market that had been going on for six years. It was the Swiss francs that allowed us to build a big client base. And those same people appreciated gold. Somewhere in the neighborhood of the year 2000, I believe I made maybe the best call, one of the best calls of my career. And I basically realized that when the European Union came into effect that the Swiss, they were an export nation. They are. And, you know, they make better watches than anyone and better chocolates. But when they said they were going to stay out of the European Union, at this point, we had probably three or four hundred million dollars of Swiss annuity premium that we had helped find its way to Switzerland through our newsletters. And I realized that they were really not telling the truth. Yes, they were going to stay out. But if they didn't 
peg their currency. They they didn't make the announcement that they did this officially for maybe a decade after. I knew they were going to do it right away because if they're an export nation in the midst of a European Union, a big one, and they didn't peg their currency to the to the euro and they let their currency go, uh, it would be far too expensive for people to uh, buy their watches, they would forgo the accuracy, they would forgo the sweetness of their chocolates and buy them from Belgium, and they just would have, their economy would have collapsed. So I told everyone of my clients, I said, look, gold's at 400 bucks right now or less, 300, probably 300 back then. Um, actually, it was, it might even been 250 back then. I said, look, it, you need to transition out of the Swiss franc and into gold right now because they're going to let their currency sink they're going to peg it to the new euro. It's the only way their economy, they're going to they're going to sacrifice their currency in favor of their economy. And, and they did. And really was a great deal. And it ushered in our precious metals. Um, um, our, our really, our, our reputation began really in the year 2000, in my opinion, as far as precious metals are concerned. And our client base has grown ever since then. But never was it based upon what's common it's it was more of just a should be a portion of your holdings i think i might give you a segue into that and i think that I absolutely love history i consider myself somewhat of a student of history though an amateur one and one of the things about history is it does not move in straight lines it is not an even even ascension or dissension to something it happens in very dramatic big and often very fast moves when you look at things financially in this country, big one obviously was Roosevelt's gold confiscation. Second would be obviously Nixon taking us over the gold standard. Uh, I also, in addition to these podcasts, I do a weekly video blog. And I guess back a few months ago, when we kicked Russia out of the SWIFT system, I thought that was colossally dumb because our, our the wealth of this country, the power of this country is based on the US dollar being the world's reserve currency. It's based on this idea that anyone can take our dollars they can buy commodities with it. They can buy oil, gold with it. They can buy anything around the world. You do not want to do anything, in my view, to cripple to cripple that system because we benefit unbelievably from that. I mean, if you want to talk about 8% inflation, if all of a sudden all the dollars being held by all the central banks start to come back here because countries are less confident whether or not in the future they will have economic warfare declared against them. That's a problem. And so that, that to me has been a, a real, probably the biggest alarm, the biggest red flag I've seen in the business. And now for me, I guess it's been about you know, 27, 28 years or so. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Did, did, did that strike you as being as important or am I overblowing that? No, I mean, that's been the, the central thesis of everything I've talked about now for two years. And I've done hundreds and hundreds of YouTube videos on this. And um, I think it is, it's what is, is the most frightening thing in the world. So let's go back to 1971, but we'll even go back before that. We'll go back to the end of World War II when the dollar or the US uh, met in Bretton Woods as the allies met in Bretton Woods after the war and look, Europe was ravaged by you know two world wars in the span of what like fifty years or whatnot, and so the U.S. at this point the the engine of prosperity, uh, the center of free trade and liberty and freedom, um, a continent away across an ocean, uh, it was a safe place to keep 
gold. And so the U.S. said to the world, listen, to the governments of the world, um, you park your gold with us and uh, we'll pay you 35 bucks for it an ounce. And you can buy our treasuries, help expand our economy, but you'll earn interest on a non-interest bearing investment or asset rather, your gold. And anytime you want it back, we'll pay you uh, $35 an ounce for it. We will lock that in and guarantee it. And, and it was that way. It was a good deal for everyone. Uh, the Europeans had their gold safely stored away with converted into treasuries. They're, they're making interest uh, on, on what is a non-interest bearing asset. The U.S. economy is expanding through the purchasing of our treasuries and everyone wins. And it was until towards the end of the Vietnam War where um, De Gaulle from France realized we were printing too many dollars to fund the Vietnam War. And he sent ships to New York Harbor filled with um, dollars and, and said, give us gold. And we did. And it bled down a large, vast portion of the gold held at the Treasury and Nixon closed the gold window. That was the end of the dollar at that point as being convertible into gold. It was backed by nothing. And at, you know, I, I did a presentation at Rick Rule's conference here in Boca a few weeks ago, and I stood up on the stage and I said to people, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about some things. And these are people that spend minimum 500 bucks to go to this show. They're all clients of Rick, who is one of the most sophisticated um, uh, people in this space I've ever met. I mean, in, in, in just in general, sophisticated, well-read, brilliant people that um, come to this show are very educated. And yet I asked at the beginning of the presentation, not only did I say what I'm about to say, but I said, I'm going to mention several things. And I'm going to ask you to think, you don't have to raise your hand, but think, did you ever hear about this before? And jot them down so you can Google them and make sure that I'm being sincere in what I'm telling you. And um, I think I really blew a lot of people away. And um the question that I'm going to ask, and you don't have to answer because I know you know it, but most people don't. And that is what makes the dollar the world reserve currency. And you know, most people don't understand that. Uh, most people don't know and they guess. And a lot of it centers around military and strongest economy and this and that, blah, blah, blah. No, what the answer is, is that three years after Nixon closed the gold window, Henry Kissinger flew to Saudi Arabia and struck a deal with the Saudi kingdom and said, look, we're going to protect you. And for that protection, no one's ever going to mess with you. You're going to denominate oil globally in, in dollars and through OPEC. And they agreed. And so for the past 50 plus years, or yeah, well, almost take that back about uh, 48 years. Uh, everyone in the world has had to buy dollars in order to buy oil. It's, it's created a massive synthetic demand for the dollar. If you want oil, you got to buy dollars. And so every country on the planet Earth has had to buy dollars to buy oil. And that has created what is known as the petrol dollar. And this is the central point of my contention. So, and I think you know, if you can stop me at any point to interject and ask, ask questions, because as I go down this road, I have a bad habit of rambling and going. If you want to stop me at any point, let me know. But I'm going to take you back to 2017. And this is when I noticed things really started to change. And, you know, I'll tell you, I've been very consistent about this for two years now. This has been a path I've been taking people down. And every, you know, every month, there's another 
another leg of the path that just keeps showing up. And it's really quite crazy to me. And then so I'm, I met a guy the other day, he called me a time traveler at Big Squeer's Roadshow. And I mean, it, it's really strange to actually see that what you're talking about play out. And I don't think you have to be a genius. You just need to open your eyes. And I'm trying to think back to 2017 now. And I remember it being a pretty quiet year. <laughs> not, it not was. At least in my it, world, it was a pretty good year. It was a good year for you. And, and because, okay, so gold peaks in 2011 and so does silver starts coming down. By 2017, we see, you know, six year downdraft in metals. We see your market, the equity market going bonkers uh you see bitcoin for the first time really taken off now you're talking four or five six hundred dollar bitcoin and and in my industry in the 33 years i've done this typically people selling back to us amount to one out of 100 transactions if not less most of the time people are apologetic they're buying it to put it away um, and give it to their kids but that changed in 2017 and everyone was selling gold Everyone would capitulated. They were just pissed. You know, it's like Bitcoin's going to the moon. The stock market's going to the moon. This, this Bitcoin thing was supposed to be cut from the same cloth, even if it was a distant cousin. Heck, it's a gold-colored digital coin, and they, they call it digital gold. Why is it going up and gold isn't? And a lot of people capitulated and bailed. It was an icky time to own a precious metals company. The central banks had been selling gold. The Eastern European, most of the European central banks have been selling gold this whole way up over the last six years back then, with the exception of India and China and Russia. They are always accumulating. But then something interesting happened. And this is where we start going down this road that I have been consistently talking about now for the better part of two years. And this road, I call it a linear progression of events. And it started with a very strange thing. And that was about two years earlier, 2015 or so, that you heard Germany make a, a, a request that they wanted to repatriate their gold that was being held at the Fed. And it kind of died off. But by 2017, they started really publicly yelling, give us back our gold already. And we want it back by 2020. The fact that the articles would say the fact that we can't just put it on a ship and send it off is ridiculous. Why is this taking so long? But Germany was the first country the Bundesbank, to come out in 2017 to the New York Fed and say, we want all our gold repatriated, send it back. And that was weird because the banks had been selling gold and they had they were net sellers of it and everyone else was selling it too. Why do they want their gold back? And started to think about this for a little bit. Well, it wasn't too long after that, that the Bank of Austria, uh, the Bank of Turkey, uh, the Bank of Hungary, the Czech National Bank, the Bank of Poland, the Dutch National Bank, all of these banks. And interestingly enough, enough, most of the banks that did the exact same thing, said, give us back our gold. Now, all of these banks are the Eastern European banks that are part of the European Union, but they don't trade in the euro. And as we move forward through this line, you'll see these are also the banks that are massively accumulating gold right now and have been for three years. And ultimately, I think that plays into which side of the board they end up on. But all of these countries, these Eastern European countries that are in the Eurozone, but trade their own currency, but they all were part of the European Union, said the same thing. Give us back our gold from the New York Fed and the Bank of England. Now I'm really getting interested. Like, how? why are all these banks doing this? 
So the following year, 2018, those banks bought more gold as a group than they did in the 60 years previously combined. Now I'm really interested. Something's going on here. Repatriation, massive accumulation. It's crazy. Now it's not just the Russians, the Indians, and the Chinese. 2019 comes along, those numbers are up 90%, almost 100%. Now they're massively accumulating, going on a buying spree uh, for two and a half years. And then comes mile marker one, the single biggest event of my career to this point that nobody talks about. And I ask the people at Rick's conference, don't raise your hand, but I bet you maybe one out of 100 in this room has ever heard this. And that is that, uh, and you be honest too, you be honest too, but if, if you hadn't listened to anything that I said, as someone who's highly in tune to finance as you are, had you heard about this? In April of 2019, the Bank of International Settlements, which is the central banker's central bank in Basel, Switzerland, reclassified gold as the world's only other tier one reserve asset. Now, since the end of World War II, there's only been one tier one reserve asset. By central bank standards, that's US dollars and treasuries. And out of nowhere, the BIS reclassifies gold as the world's only other tier one reserve asset. Now, let's stop for a second. Does it make sense to you now that the central banks all started repatriating their gold, all started buying their gold in what amounts to two and a half years early? Do you think this is purely coincidental or were they queued in, clued in to the Basel III requirements or what they what they were going to do with the Basel III agenda. And so, I don't know, have you heard about that? Had you heard about it, if not through something I had said? I had not until I watched some YouTube videos trying to prep for this. Yeah. I had not heard of that. And so, think about this. Now, people in my industry used to say, well, if the dollar ever craps the bed, they'll do a special drawing rights from the International Monetary Fund. That was always what people talked about. This is 195 countries from around the world that actually was formulated at Bretton Woods uh, that would they would all pledge parts of their currencies to formulate this new currency that would you know, be there in, in dollar trouble to, to come in and act as a, as a substitute world reserve if there was a problem. Uh, we'll get to the to the IMF in a moment. But in any case, I want to say this one more time. Gold is reclassified the world's only other tier one reserve asset. The Bank of International Settlements is the most powerful bank in the world. They are the central banker's central bank. They do not do things for you know what and giggles. They do things that are have a specific intention. And they don't just do things in the ether for the hell of it. So the fact that they reclassify gold tier one, at this point, after what I've seen the previous two and a half years, now I'm going on YouTube every day talking about this and trying to figure out where we're going down the road. And as time goes on, I keep seeing these signposts. I'm like, holy crap, something's going on here. So let's keep going down the road. We're still in 2019 and we hear the signpost number two. Now, maybe you've heard about this. Maybe you hadn't before you listened to my stuff. I look at this as one of the biggest events in everyone's life, and yet our media is pathetic, and they don't tell us what's important. Now, I want everyone out there listening to this to ask yourself, did you know gold was a tier one reserve asset, the only other one next to U.S. dollars? How about this one? Did you know that the Chinese 
in 2019 embarked upon what is called the Belt Road Initiative. Have you ever heard of that prior to this? Yes. Yeah, I'd heard about. Uh, I've got a. Uh, we've actually did a podcast with a good buddy of mine that does a ton of business in Bangladesh, and, and they've they're pretty locked in with China with a number of different things. But yes, I've heard okay, of that. good. I'm glad you've you've helped sh- spread the word. In fact, when I got off the stage at Rick's conference, uh, Nomi Prince came up to me and said, "I am so glad you told people about the Belt Road Initiative. It's such a big deal." And I was kind of awestruck by her. She's she's a pretty well-known lady and, and very powerful in her circle. So, uh, But I'll tell you out there that this is the real deal. This is the largest infrastructure project ever attempted in human history. This is China's effort to revive the old Belt Road, connecting Asia and Africa and parts of Europe. And the parts of Europe that I think, by the way, will be connected are the exact same countries that I just mentioned, those Eastern European countries who all have been wickedly buying gold. I want everyone to just follow me. I will connect the dots. We'll go back and do a summation of all this when we're done. But we are all, this is all leading somewhere. All right. So uh, the Belt Road Initiative, this is 75% of human population right now, 45% of global gross domestic product right now, before industrialization. The roads, the bridges, the maritime channels will only be patrolled by military and commerce. It's the Panama Canal on steroids. It is not uh, for anything other than commerce. And it's China's way of industrializing this massive, massive land mass and three quarters of human population. So what's interesting about this is that it's all settling. The majority of all the contracts are settling on the new Chinese digital yuan. The dollar is not part of this. The West is not part of this. But the Chinese digital yuan, uh, since then, has done close to 20 billion in successful transactions, including the Winter Olympics. It's, let's call it a beta test on steroids. And if you realize that three quarters of human population is being indoctrinated into a new currency, one that isn't just the US dollar, Uh, for settlement in all of these um, massive endeavors, it's it's illuminating. So that's signpost number two. You have the industrialization of a part of the world that is encompassing 75% of human population in the United States, and the United States dollar is very conspicuously absent. We continue down. I want to inject one point on that. You kind of you made a connection for me that I had not made before, actually. Um, looking at China, I've always, if demographics are destiny, their demographics are garbage right now. I mean, they're going to have half a billion people less, or excuse me, 500, 500 million people, probably half a billion less uh, in 2100 based on their current trends than they will. But if you are essentially colonizing all, all the all the high-rate population growth areas, such as India or particularly Africa, where your own demographics are don't really matter because how many people were actually in the United Kingdom when they ruled the seas and they ruled the the entire planet? They're it's, doing it's, the same thing in Brazil too. Very interesting. Anyway, I'm sorry, but continue. No, please. that's okay. Please, I welcome it. I love the I love the back and forth. I really do. And by the way, I'm going to be starting my own audio podcast with a partner of mine, and I'd love to have you on and do a three way back to back to back. That's just for another time. But I, I like this. I like your open-mindedness. I like uh, your, the way that you go back. So please feel free. Anyway, so we're still in 2019 and all this is going on. Things are starting to really take shape. We get to 2020. 
some very thing, interesting things happen. Uh, the first thing that I'll mention that was very interesting to me in 2020 was the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Remember, it was formulated at Bretton Woods. It was what everyone thought would, would take the place of the dollar if there was ever problems, and that would be a special drawing rights issued by the IMF, nearly 200 countries from around the world, formulated in 1944 at Bretton Woods. They come out on their website and say what? We want a new Bretton Woods. Hmm, that's interesting. So this group of countries wants a new system, a new currency system, a new dollar system. That's what Bretton Woods was. Bretton Woods anointed the dollar, the world reserve currency, taking over for the pound sterling and set up the framework for everything. It made U.S. dollars and treasuries tier one back then. It's It, it was the the standard at the end of the war. Well, now you get the IMF publicly on their website saying we want a new system. Now, I wouldn't call this marker number three, but it certainly is marker 2A, where you know things are not looking really rosy for the future of the dollar when you see everyone pulling their gold out and buying tons, a huge landmass infrastructure, three quarters of human population, the US isn't part of it, or the dollar. And now 200 countries from around the world say we want a new system. All right, I get it. Following the same pattern of accumulation and repatriation, we move over to the COMEX market in 2020. Um, and in 2020, so every week, the Commodity Exchange publishes something that is called the Commitment of Traders Report. And uh, the Commitment of Traders Report is the positioning of the largest traders on COMEX. And COMEX, for those people who don't know, it's let's call it the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. It's where, from the movie Trading Places, uh, it's where the commodities are traded. And and so the and we can talk about some later on if there's time. Some crazy things that are going on there right now. But in any case, the they publish a report every week. And, and this commitment of traders report shows the positioning of the largest traders on the exchange, only the largest. And my whole career, I would I would look at it every week. And my whole career, over 30 years until recently, till 2020, we see two, two groups on the chart, and that's it. One group was always, has always been the commercials, JP, Goldman City, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, all these big commercial banks. And the other side of the ledger is always called the specs, and those are the hedge funds. And you, you would see it's a zero-sum game. If the speculators, the hedge funds would go long, the commercial banks would go short. If the, the speculators would go short, the commercial banks would go long. And that was it. You never saw it. And back then, no one ever stood for delivery on the COMEX. Typically, one out of 100 contracts would ever settle for delivery. Uh, we use commodity uh, we use the COMEX market to hedge our futures position or our metals position to give people an understanding of what it's really used for because it's turned into a casino. But what it's really been, you know, the real reason to, to have the commodity exchange was was to mitigate risk for a farmer who, who plants a field in uh, in April. Well, he can sell his uh, his his crop to a baker in for delivery in September, the baker gets a price he's happy with, the farmer gets a price he's happy with, goes through and, and runs the cycle, harvests it, and, and doesn't have to worry about anything. He's already been guaranteed a price. It's, it's hedging risk. I use it 
if I have a thousand ounces of gold in my warehouse, I'll sell a thousand ounces on Comex on paper. So that if what I have in my warehouse falls by a hundred dollars, meaning I would be down a hundred thousand dollars, I'll be up a hundred thousand in my Comex contract position. It allows me to be market neutral. That's what the Comex is used for, but it's turned into something much more than that. So rarely, if ever, would we ever take delivery. We just use it to hedge our position, nor would the farmer or the baker. Well, the farmer, I mean, let's just put it this way. The baker is taking delivery, but it's agreed upon contract. Most contracts are never settled for delivery. Anyways, bottom line is this. All of a sudden in 2020, there's this group of reportables on the Commitment of Traders report called the Others. It's a third group. Never seen it before, ever. In 2020, it comes out of nowhere. And these are thought to be the most sophisticated uh, well-funded, well-informed private traders on the globe. Let's call them sovereign wealth funds. Let's call them family offices. So in 2020, they not only bought a tremendous amount of gold and silver, they took possession of what amounted to 10 years worth of deliveries on the COMEX in silver. They bought and took possession of more gold um, on the um, off the COMEX and took possession of it than we saw than the bank, the bank of Japan has in their official holdings. I mean, all of a sudden you're seeing massive, massive accumulation and deliveries off of Comex. Never seen that before, ever, to this day. And they're continuing to do so. We'll talk about that if we have enough time. Remind me to tell you what's going on Comex now. But we're still I'm kind, in 2020. I'm kind of surprised. Yeah. I, want, I want to explore that a little bit deeper because I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised the institutions let them do that. Because, you know, you go back to the Hunt Brothers, they want a delivery. They didn't get yeah. it. Well, the difference is what the Hunt Brothers did is the Hunt Brothers realized that there were more contracts than there are bars um, and similar situation we have now, but they just tried it. Instead, they bought up as many contracts as they could and took delivery. It would have bankrupt the system. It would have broken the exchange. So they changed the rules on them back then saying you can only be long like a million contracts, but you can be short unlimited, which makes no sense. So all these long contracts they had, which they were to stand for delivery, which wouldn't been able to be delivered were now illegal they had to sell them that's what they did to protect their own but they do they were and they able still to take delivery is so the, so the physical metals were delivered well they would have been able to except they they changed the rules not the Hunt brothers did. i'm sorry i'm talking about I'm yes talking about the others did they yeah, did yeah, and did. okay so you're still seeing it happen today so um, in fact, just to, to jump to where we are today, since I keep talking about it, and I'll come back to where we were uh, just the other day, and this is very important, just the other day, 42% of all, so the COMEX also has these, um, they have, what are they called? They're kilo gold bars that are held in a mini contract. And this mini contract is is not what the sovereigns deal in. It's, it's a smaller contract, but uh, in one day last week, uh, the uber wealthy people, and I call them the others, ha they withdrew 41% of all the physical gold kilos held in the Chicago mercantile in one day. It amounted to 174,612,000 ounces. And the reason I think it was the others is specifically because the, the sovereigns only take 100 ounce bars or 400 ounce bars. They don't take the kilos and so the withdrawals of this magnitude don't happen very often at all. But to put it in perspective, the 50-day average rate of gold withdrawal as a result of this just hit a high of 131,293 ounces. Let me tell you what this really means. Think about this for a moment. On average, 
131,293 ounces of gold or $233 million has been withdrawn from the COMEX every day for the past 50 days. 174,612,000 ounces were pulled out. And I'm telling you something wicked this way comes. You don't see this kind of stuff. So let me go back. And if you have a question, go for it. Hey, GM, look at the spot price of gold on my other screen here. Uh, hasn't budged. Yeah. So, so I mean, you would think that that withdrawal no, is that magnitude. Because maybe they already owned it. Uh, I don't know if they mm. bought it. Maybe they did. Maybe they were just leaving it there. They took them off the exchange. But it doesn't matter what happens to the spot price. Spot price is controlled by the futures market. The paper market controls the price. And I believe that they've been holding down the paper price. JP Morgan paid $920 million fine for suppressing the market. Their head gold trader, Michael Nowak, just pled guilty uh, and is, he's going to go to prison for a very long time. I was found guilty for manipulating the market, as did two other traders. Um, and so I think that the big, big money has been manipulating the price of gold in order to accumulate it. And you'll see as we continue down this road um, that price is a tool of misdirection. And we could have a whole, a whole interview on gold manipulation, and I'll cite facts, uh, and it won't be, it won't be um, uh, hyperbole. It won't be speculation. I can cite lots of facts that point to it. But anyway, so let's go back to 2020. The others come. They're draining the market, as they're doing today. The IMF says we want a, a new Bretton Woods. The commercial banks, or excuse me, the central banks are still buying copious amounts of gold. Things are really getting crazy. And um, at this point, you know, I've been talking about this for over a year, especially with at this point, we're all locked in and I'm at home and not going out. And I'm like, things are getting crazy. And I, I keep documenting this. I had no idea where it was going to really go to the to the depths of where it's gone. 2021 comes along. Uh, Russia, Turkey, India, Poland, China, Kazakhstan, Hungary, Thailand, Japan, Brazil, all of them massively accumulating gold up 10x from the year before most of them um and you know i am convinced at this point that the days of the dollar are numbered um but i had no idea because one of the things that happened in 2021 was the rise of the chinese petro yuan bond and um this started to pique my interest uh, and and it was in conjunction with the Shanghai Gold Exchange, both of which were really starting to hum at this point. Most people don't know about either of those. The Shanghai Gold Exchange is uh, similar to the COMEX, and uh, they've delivered over 90 times more gold than the COMEX has over the last several years. And it's because they're largely cash and carry. But what had been happening is that countries like Iran were selling their oil to China for a petro yuan bond. And this bond was was basically usurping the petro dollar. They would pay for oil from Iran in um, a petro yuan bond that was immediately convertible into gold on the Shanghai Gold Exchange. This is why they've delivered so much. This is how Iran has been able to sidestep sanctions and other countries as well. So they're setting up this, this very interesting infrastructure um, China is. We, we've got the Belt Road. We've got the Shanghai Gold Exchange. We've got the Petro Yuan Bond. You can see things aren't looking good from a standpoint. If you're playing chess, you can see that the, the trap is being set. And I'm really keenly aware of it at this point. And then comes mile marker number three. 
probably the biggest event of all of our. Andy, I'm going to give you a pause there. You've got me on the edge of my seat here, and I've got so many questions for you. Mile marker three, we're going to hit the pause button on that. And um, will you come back and do another hour with me? Absolutely. All right. Well, I, I can't wait to hear what's next. And I've got tons of questions for you. So I'm looking forward to that. Andy, this has been fantastic. I, I told Brent when we were talking, I said, this guy, <laughs> he knows his stuff and it's going to be, you You ask a question and let him go because he's got so much information. Andy, I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, brother. Yeah. And Brent, you, you're fantastic. You, you just bring in these guests that just blow my mind. Um, thank you for facilitating this and, and being the man. Um, if, if people want to reach out to you and just chat about some of the stuff that they're learning on this podcast and learning from you, can you give them some contact info? Sure. Yeah. Our office number here is uh, 602-255-0555 uh, or email, email me directly at brentbrent.mikosh at raymondjames.com. All right. And if people want to continue a conversation with you, Andy, where do they find you? Uh, they can find me at uh, Andy at milesfranklin.com. Our new website. We have a website right now, Eric, milesfranklin.com. It's really kind of crummy. And our new one that we've been developing for about six months now is in beta testing will be launched in the next couple of weeks, but they can always reach me at Andy at milesfranklin.com. I'm always happy to respond to, uh, to people who are listening to the podcast. All right. Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you again. And of course, our last thank you goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device and you're not going to want to miss the second podcast. Trust me. We also humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it and leave a review as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.